This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a former Hellraiser podcast and now everything Clive Barker podcast. <laughs> I'm Joe Lipset. I have many questions and I'm going to pose them all to Mr. Brian Christopher. Ooh, I have questions coming. Okay, good. That, that makes things easier. <laughs> that way, like if I'm just answering questions, I don't have to come up with the topics. So uh, right. yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. So, Brian, we have somehow found ourselves transitioning over from what was once a limited series into, I think, something you and I are maybe going to try to do a little bit more regularly. Yeah, it's looking that way. I mean, it's it's something where, obviously, we started this whole thing as a lead up to the Hellraiser remake in... Mm -hmm. Time is meaningless to me at this point, so I think it was October <laughs> it came out. Um, <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, we, we had some ideas about kind of the, the different literary things that would, that would lead up to that and could feed into Hellraiser. Uh, Hellraiser has since come and gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, I, I, I guess the, the continuation kind of started cause we started getting some recommendations, uh, we did. Yeah. which was really cool to see. You know, I like the fact that people were kind of tuning into this enough that they gave us some recommendations. So we we started branching out based off of those. It was still kind of in the literary Hellraiser universe. So, you know, mm -hmm. it definitely applied. And you being you and me being me, we just mm -hmm. decided to kind of keep branching out. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, this is becoming, you know, not just Hellraiser related, but it's getting, I think, into all the the inner workings of Clive Barker. So I think we're we're expanding our palette a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're keeping it manageable in terms of workload. I literally had a bit of a panic attack the other night thinking about, oh gosh, does this mean we might have to do a Magicka at some point? <laughs> I thought, okay, well, we could do it. We might just have to plan very far in advance. Yeah, maybe we build up to that. Yeah. So folks, we're taking baby steps away from Hellraiser. Never fret. We promised we were going to do the Sherlock Holmes crossover. We still have plans to, but Brian had a little bit of difficulty sourcing a copy. So we're going to do that one in the new year. We're going to kick off 2023 with the Sherlock Holmes Hellraiser crossover, and we're going to fill your December instead with volume one of Books of Blood, and then we'll have another episode before the new year where we're going to specifically talk about the Midnight Meat Train both the short story as well as the film adaptation starring Bradley Cooper and Vinnie Jones. Such an interesting pairing, thinking back to that, like in terms of like where their careers have gone. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'll confess, I was aware of these stories and I knew of the film, but I haven't actually consumed either text. So I'm very excited to start with this series of short stories, Brian. Tell me, had you ever read these before? I think I had gotten through, I, I have actually owned a copy of volumes one through three of the books mm -hmm. of blood for years. Okay. Uh, I think I kept doing starts and stops in terms of, I think I'd gotten through most of volume one. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've already confessed this when it comes to Clive Barker and I think any 
creator, I get obsessed with certain texts of theirs. Right. And we all know which one I got obsessed with when it comes to Clive Barker. Magica. Um, yes. So, yes, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> love me that dark fantasy. Um, I'm guessing that's what it is. I actually don't know what that one's about. Uh, yeah, you, you're correct in saying it's kind of dark fantasy. Okay, yeah. cool. But yeah, I had done some branching out into Clive Barker with some of these short stories with a couple of his novels. But part of what I'm excited about now that we're kind of branching out into this being all things Clive Barker, you know, I love any opportunity I get to nudge my lazy ass into doing things I might not have done otherwise. Right. So I think this is going to be that opportunity for me to really dig in. Um, I'm even more excited now that I've really paid attention to these short stories from volume one and really just been reminded at what an amazing author and wordsmith Clive Barker is because I think mm -hmm. I, I can't wait to talk about just what range this guy has while still keeping his personality in all of them. You know what? You literally just took the words out of my mouth because I was just thinking about even within these six stories that make up volume one, there is such range, right? Like I mm -hmm. went into this thinking, okay, I'm excited for the prose that has drawn you and I so particularly to Hellraiser, like the, the Hellraiser adjacent texts, because we love the wordplay and the sensuality and just like the descriptive prowess that Barker seems to have. But I, you know, I've read a couple of his other books and I find that it really sings with certain types of stories. And sometimes he's fallible. He is a human being and the story isn't quite as good or it's almost too all consuming. Like some of the bigger texts almost feel like they've consumed him as opposed mm. to he's birthed them. So it's interesting to read kernels of stories. Like I, I really enjoyed reading this first volume thinking about like, which of these stories do I like the most? Which ones do I think are cinematic? Which ones do I think are impossible to adapt? And they work <laughs> best just as stories. So it it's fascinating in that way. And I feel like I don't often have the experience of getting to read short stories from acclaimed novelists because they stick to that particular mode of storytelling. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you mentioned like which ones would be most adaptable, which ones would be least. Uh -huh. Given the fact that for my money, the one that I think was least adaptable was the one that they did turn into a movie. Um, and we'll be talking about that in more, in more detail later this month. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll have some thoughts on, on how midnight me train was adapted into a movie and what, may or may not have worked in that <laughs> yes i've been told by numerous people not to get my hopes up in terms of every part of that short story being adapted mm -hmm. but brian that's that's the second story in volume one so why don't we begin with the first which is the book of blood so it has been adapted twice once uh for Book of Blood by John Harrison, and then once for Hulu by Brandon Brega. And I have actually covered the 2020 version with Trace on Horror Queers. We did a Patreon uh, mini-sode on it. And it's okay. Yeah. And I'll confess, I think this story is okay, but it feels too short to me. I think it works as an intro to the entire series. Right. So if it was something I was reading on its own, yeah, I think there would be something lacking. Um, but mm -hmm. I do think it's almost like 
for me, you know, it's like the when you watch the anthology movie and they have that framing story. That's right. kind of what this was. So I think it for me it works in that way. But yeah, if it was just if we were trying to take it as its own thing, I don't think it's necessarily as as effective as some of the other ones in the uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. So, folks, if you haven't read Books of Blood, Volume 1, or you haven't read this particular short story, or you just haven't read it in a very long time, uh, this first story is about a psychic researcher named Mary Florescu, and she has a medium named Simon McNeil, and they're investigating a haunted house, and he is a phony. So he's been faking all of these supernatural occurrences where there are descriptive messages written on the walls of an upstairs room. Until the ghosts get mad at Simon and they decide that they will carve their stories into his flesh. Mm -hmm. So they cover every available inch of space with their stories, their names, and so on. And the idea, as you said, is that the stories that will follow on the heels of this particular intro is all of the stories that have been written on Simon's flesh. And I think, you know, one of the brilliant things about Barker and the the way he he navigates prose and the picture that he's painting mm-hmm. you know, you had mentioned the idea that these these ghosts carve it into every inch of his body and of course that includes the obvious illusions you know in terms mm-hmm. of you know all over his genitals all all that kind of thing but i think Barker is so good at about taking it to the next level. He's like, forget the genitals. Like they're going into his eyelids. Like they're going oh. into like every corner and crevice of this yep. guy's body. And it's you know, he he seems to be that type of mind where it's like, oh, you think you've you've taken this to a, a cross line? I'll, I'll show you where the cross line is. Mm-hmm. And it does have shades of the things that we liked about Hellraiser, right? It's mm-hmm. not just the prose, but this idea of the mutilation of flesh. If you were enticed by the idea of the hell priest, this is going to satiate some of those desires because in a way, instead of driving pins into Simon's skin, we're just covering it with scarring. But mm-hmm. There's just something so beautiful about the idea of this horrible violence being enacted on this person, but it's not malicious. It's just a storytelling venue. Like his flesh becomes the conduit by which to tell these successive stories in the same way that the book from the evil dead is made of flesh. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a reality to this. Like we have used flesh of both humans and animals for our parchment to tell stories throughout the ages. And it's this this combination of, in some ways, it's very haphazard because the spirits are just finding wherever they can. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that mental image it evokes is similar to Hellraiser in that it's, it creates this very grotesque but also beautiful image that gets conjured in your mind. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, picturing this lengthy prose just all over this guy's body is it's horrifying but it's also so interesting and compelling Uh and something that if you saw it on a painting you would like be compelled to keep staring at it even as it kind of hurt you to look at a little bit yeah and and that's where i think the story's power lies particularly in the ending right like this doesn't really do much except whet the appetite for some of the stories to come but i love this idea that simon will now become this thing that uh mary will forever study like she was already kind of in love with him or at Mm -hmm. least sexually attracted to him because he's young and he's got something that she wants but now he's everything to her because he is not just proof that the supernatural 
exists and like ghosts are real and they interact with our world but also she will study his body in every facet Mm -hmm. which is like such a a kind of double entendre way (laughs) of putting it right absolutely yeah it you know there's very little i think that barker does that doesn't bring some sense of sensuality to it Mm -hmm. um and there's always that element of the forbidden sensuality too right I forget if this isn't first person. I think it's third person, but they kind mm-hmm. of get into the mind of uh, of both characters, actually, depending on like who they're following. But you know, there's that acknowledgement that McNeil is much younger than her, but she yes. still lusts after him. That's something that will uh, even these you know even in future stories that's going to come up uh, potentially mm-hmm. in much more disturbing ways in some of the other uh, stories we're going to see. Yeah, but you know, I, I think Barker is always so good at daring you to find sensuality in places where typically you shouldn't and in ways that might make you feel really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. well let's transition to the next story which is the midnight meat train would you say that that still applies to this story which is (laughs) about a man who discovers a serial killer is using a secret train in new york to basically deliver food to city elders that are like i don't even know how to kind of broach what these figures are yeah they're they're almost like uber ghouls or something Mm -hmm. like that they're they're very hard to describe i think the yeah it's funny because we bring up you know you'd mentioned does that sensuality and that kind of forbidden love carry through into this? And my mm-hmm. immediate reaction is like, no, you know, of course I say that <laughs> and then we get into a story where it's not there. But if I wanted to make a stretch, I could say that the, the forbidden love here is between Leon, the, the main character and the city, New York city. Mm. Cause he's got a very, jaded view of how he sees new york city because he had always romanticized it and then when he got there he realized like oh this place is difficult to say the least and it is not what i thought it was going to be and is very much not romanticized Mm -hmm. so there's a an element of him kind of getting over that romanticized version of the city but then falling in love with the reality of the city which is something that's much darker and comes with a lot more baggage and is frankly horrifying yeah i i don't want to go too into depth with Mm -hmm. this one because we are going to do that full episode on it later on this month but i will say this was the story that kind of hooked me into i guess what barker is doing with i feel like about 50 percent of these first six stories which is that he tells what you think is a fairly straightforward or familiar story and then kind of pulls the rug out from under you in the back half to tell something far grander far more epic in scope like you really starts you on a straight and narrow path and then all of a sudden by the end of this your your whole definition of what the world is has changed that's very true there's there's pivots in a Mm -hmm. lot of these initial stories um yeah and and the more i think about where these other ones are going to go you know he lulls you into a sense of this is the story i'm telling and then he finds a way to, like you said, pull the rug out from under you, but not in a way that makes it seem like a cheat. Mm-hmm. It still fits in with what he was setting up beforehand. It's just turning it into something very different. 
Yeah, so maybe let's leave the Midnight Meat Train behind for now, knowing Mm -hmm. that we'll have an opportunity to revisit it in greater depth and scope. But it's funny that you say, you know, it, it still sort of feels on par with Barker and like, it fits in with what he's trying to do because our next story, the yattering and Jack <laughs> is very much the odd man out in this first set of stories. And I can't, I can't put my finger on whether I feel like it's the weakest because it's meant to be more funny and playful, or if I just don't care for the story as much. Mm, I really like this one. I, I okay. like, I like the playful tone that Barker is bringing to it mainly because you don't get, something this like upfront playful from him mm-hmm. uh, this isn't my favorite my favorite is going to be that the second to last one that we talked about that has i think more of barker as a whimsical storyteller okay. mm-hmm. um but i don't know there's something about this story and, and it, it focuses on this character jack polo who is that is described <laughs> as a gherkin importer <laughs> which just what right off the top yeah, exactly yeah yeah like the the fact that like they're specifying because gherkin is a pickle right i'm not mm-hmm. yeah, okay so like the, the the fact that he never like he could have just said like he's in pickles or something like that the fact that mm-hmm. he is very specifically talking gherkins and he never uses the word pickle for some reason is also just funny to me but it's yeah, all... i don't know if that's like a british thing but uh Potentially. i also found it peculiar <laughs> um but it's it's another story that you're getting from the point of view of two different characters. So you get some from the point of view of Jack, and then you get some from the point of view of a minor demon called the Yattering, Uh who actually you follow most of the story. And the concept is that this demon has been charged by the, you know, devilish powers that be Mm -hmm. with consuming this guy's mind and making him insane. Right. Um, So there are rules that, that demons have to work by within this universe. Like he can't, cause direct physical harm to Jack, but he is supposed to basically fuck with him to the degree that Jack goes insane or in some way gets corrupted Mm -hmm. um, and gets condemned that way. And the issue is that Jack apparently is such a, like a nothing and just kind of so milk toast and, and just so unfazable that like he can't be, he can't, he can't be corrupted. Be corrupted. He can't yeah. be driven insane. He he reacts to every horrible thing this demon does to him, including like throwing multiple cats in the fire Oof. or like mutilating them. I think at one point it just gets so mad it just explodes a cat. Yes, all over the room. Yeah. And Jack is just like, I guess yeah. that's the thing that happened. Yeah. And in his his uh his <laughs> he's kind of got a catchphrase, which is saying K-sara-sara, but he mispronounces it, Che-sara-sara. Oh, boy. What a dud. <laughs> or is he? <laughs> or is he? Yes. Because, of course, when we get Jack's side, yes. he knows that the Yatterer is there. And he, I mean, he can't visually see it because these demons are obscured to human eyesight. Mm-hmm. But he obviously knows because part of the reason that they want Jack corrupted is because he has strong religious ties, like Mm -hmm. because of his mother. So Jack is very much aware of what's going on. And he understands the rules of the game to the point that it becomes a showdown of wills that is only really potentially thwarted or in danger of being thwarted when Jack's adult daughters come to visit for the holidays. And it's like, oh, I got to put on this farce to pretend that I don't know there's a demon living in the house trying to drive me crazy Mm -hmm. so that I don't spoil the game because it's the only way to get rid of this thing. 
And and I will say that this it, it's imperfect. Mm-hmm. Because there's part of me that wonders, would it be more fun if this was just a kind of a short nugget of a story and it was literally just this guy was so oblivious that like the demon just couldn't do it and he goes insane and he winds up like killing himself inadvertently or something like that. I think there Mm -hmm. would be something very funny about that. Right. I do appreciate the idea that, you know, again, this is Barker starting with with one thing where you kind of have this comedy it's almost a farce basically mm-hmm. where you know this this demon is just not able to get through to this guy cuz he's just so oblivious and then barker kind of raises the stakes by saying this guy knows exactly what he's doing and he's playing a very very dangerous game and yeah. he you get that sense of like it ramps up the tension when you realize that this is all a house of cards and mm-hmm. if jack goes the wrong way or makes one wrong move like it could all come tumbling down and he winds up losing or succumbing and i feel like my issue is that i don't ever feel like jack or his daughters are really ever truly in danger like the fine line between the comedy and the horror is out of balance for me Mm. like this is too comedic and so the stakes aren't properly there i thought it got a little messy where once i knew that jack knew and you Mm -hmm. kind of saw what he was doing and and for me he's getting very desperate towards the end he is. Yeah. And he's he's making these desperate moves. And I guess I think it would have been better had they gone back into the Yattering's point of view and mm, kind of mm-hmm. described how maybe he was just so wrapped up with what was going on, he didn't get that he was actually getting to Jack. Right. But seeing it through Jack's point of view through the whole second half of the story, it kind of, for me, kind of pokes some plot holes in terms of like, yeah, yeah he's clearly succumbing to this. I don't see why the Yattering isn't seeing it. So I think if they if they had gone a little bit more back and forth towards the end, I think it would have been a little bit more believable had he been able to weave in some of the, you know, what might have been obscuring the demon's kind of perspective that he didn't realize that like, oh, he's being fucked with. Yeah. Um, and, and that if he, you know, were to do just a couple things the right way, like he would have won. But that said, like it's it's imperfect, but it was still pretty entertaining to me, and it worked as I, I like the idea of Barker as a bit of a comedian because mm-hmm. he he normally comes off like the the stuff that you would see or the 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 movies that he's made, Hellraiser, Nightbreed. You would and think, Lord of Illusion, Brian, and Lord of Illusion. Um, I I wanted to maybe not bring attention to the fact that I haven't seen that yet. Uh, <gasps> Brian, <laughs> yeah, oh, we have work to do. Yes, yes, um, we definitely do. But it would be reasonable to assume that Barker himself is kind of this very dark, morose guy. When mm-hmm. really he's got like, if you hear interviews with him, he's got a very like he's very intelligent. Oh, he's very. But he's funny. also got a very yeah. immature sense of humor. Oh, for sure. Um, he loves so, a good dick joke. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, and so seeing that come out a little bit in some of his writing was something that I thought was good. And I just think this kind of acts as a nice interlude for some of the other stories, and certainly mm. for I think what is going to be one of the bleaker stories that comes up next. Oh boy, yeah. And before we transition over to the next story, I did just want to acknowledge that uh, if we are looking to continue adding to our plate, <laughs> Barker did write a screenplay for The Yattering and Jack. It is an episode of the TV series Tales from the Dark Side. So, oh wow, I've never seen it. Don't know anything about it. I think I've only seen like one episode of Tales from the Dark Side. My my main experience with that is the the great underrated movie, the anthology movie that they mm-hmm. they put out in like ninety ninety one. 
Right. Which I haven't seen either. <laughs> it's good. I would recommend I've it. heard. Uh, yes. There's, there's just never enough time for anything, nope. is there? Nope. <laughs> I mean, I'm still, I'm still having to see a, a movie by my favorite director, so I can't really judge. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, story number four is Pig Blood Blues. Oh, I will confess, brutal. Brian... This is my favorite story. Well, <laughs> it's this and the last story tie, but I think that this one, this one is just so grim. Like it almost reminds me of a boarding school version of the Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because I was actually thinking of the last one as more okay of, yes. of a version of the Wicker Man. I mean, I Hilarious. guess you could, you could probably argue that both of these are folklore. Yes, I believe so. Mm-hmm. I do remember the first time I tried to go through this. I think Pig Blood Blues was the one I had the most trouble getting through just because it was okay. so uh, – it was just so morose and bleak mm -hmm. that I was just like – I was having a hard time finding a place to hang my hat oh, in terms of like, you know, following through the, the narrative. This time, um, it was still bleak and morose, but mm -hmm. probably with some age, I've grown to appreciate that a little bit more now. Okay. And I definitely – I liked what they were doing here because I think there's a lot of, as is often the case with Barker, there's a lot of layers because you have yeah. this guy, Redman, a former police officer who starts working in a juvenile detention center. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's got another name um, across the pond, but you know that's basically a bunch of you know adolescents who are too young to go to prison, but uh, uh, need to be, quote unquote, need to be incarcerated, uh, yeah. have been put here. And considering this came out in the late 80s at a time where we, we weren't necessarily having these mainstream difficult mm -hmm. conversations about our relationship with the police, right. um, he's having, I think, at least touching on some interesting points about who Redman is and and I guess the, the entire you know justice system as a whole because uh, mm -hmm. he is not kind to how he presents these systems. Um, and while no. Redman, I think, is a – uh, sympathetic character i think he's also he's got some questions about the people that we put into authority as well yeah yeah i think that was one of the things that really ended up intriguing me about this particular story is trying to get the hang of who redmond is because he's working within a system that definitely prioritizes violence as a disciplinary action so like he is literally hired not just to it's basically a show of confidence to the people who fund this, uh, I believe it's called a Borstal. Mm -hmm. And he's brought in to kind of give them some level of assurance, like, well, now we have a policeman on site, and he's going to be able to control these boys, i.e. he will be beating them, he will be terrorizing them, and so on. And Redman knows that that's why he's been brought on, but he's also far too sympathetic to these boys. And one in particular who is kind of the the inciting incident and also a bit of a MacGuffin character mm -hmm. in a weird way. So he ends up becoming really intrigued with this boy named Lacey, who is being terrorized by the other boys. Uh, he's aligned with another boy named Hennessy who has gone missing but Lacey says that Hennessy is still around and then in the darkness outside there is a pigsty and apparently as we come to discover over the course of this short story we learn that Lacey is next in line 
to be sacrificed to a giant sow who has it's basically the personification of the people that it eats Mm -hmm. but maybe is also a god yeah and i I think barker is deliberately vague in that where it's you Mm -hmm. know uh, is this a sow that's been possessed by hennessy because it ate hennessy um did it just kind of take on some of his persona and mannerisms but is still the sow and isn't really hennessy like Mm -hmm. you said is it a godlike creature that sustains itself on the 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 bodies of these of these prisoners Mm -hmm. um and kind of that's how it takes on some of these personifications it's it's very up in the air and you know yeah. that all seems very deliberate because there's oh yeah there's one point where redman you're looking at it from redman's point of view and none of that supernatural element is mm-hmm. happening it's just a bunch of like kooks who are trying to feed this kid to a pig yeah yeah so i think he he's keeping us on our toes with exactly what's going on here Mm-hmm. I can't deny one of the reasons that I ended up being very attracted to this story compared to some of the others is because there's also a very explicit undercurrent of queer sexuality here. So mm-hmm. there's a pretty heavy insinuation that Redman is mostly interested in Lacey because he is attracted to him. Mm-hmm. And there's every implication that Lacey and Hennessy might have been a couple. And then, of course, there's the obvious queerness of cannibalism like you're eating somebody else but this Mm. is an all-boy storytelling except for the warden woman who is i don't know she's there and she's not and it's fine (laughs) but like this is very much like boys eating boys in every way that you can imagine be it Mm -hmm. sexually or cannibalism and i don't know there's something so tantalizing about this concept of this man who's meant to be an outsider finding kinship with the people that he's brought in to care for but then also he winds up being sacrificed because he's not paying attention like he's he's thinking with his emotions as opposed to his intellect yeah and which is like you had alluded to before an interesting inversion of the wicker man where Mm -hmm. it's someone who is looking with his intellect and, you know, and trying to look at things logically and literally walking into, you know, the the belly of uh, uh, a wicker man where he's going to get burned alive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they really present Redman as like someone who works from his gut, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they present that, you know, that ability to like read people very quickly and to yes. kind of assign – because I think it's a, it's a really interesting way they set this story up where he, as the former cop, basically is ta- thinking to himself about how, like, don't delude yourself into thinking that these kids are innocent or mm-hmm. are just a product of their uh, product of their environment. Like, very conservative policeman way of thinking sure. versus the, the warden – or not, not not the warden, but the uh, – yeah, Sorry, the, the woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who takes on a more like at least the lip service of like, Oh no, these are, these are wounded boys and you know, they need to be cared for. But in practice, it's interesting that they work very like differently. Like Redmond seems to be the one who is approaching these kids as, as kids and, and mm-hmm. people that need protecting at least Lacey. Um, while the doctor is more just kind of like spouting off lip service while just letting these kids get sacrificed to to this sow yeah well there's every insinuation that she has been corrupted right and i Mm -hmm. think the idea of corruption 
through cannibalism, through power, through institutional authority is one of the the things that's running through this story. I just also, you've said the word morose a couple of times in describing this story, and I can't disagree with you. Mm-hmm. But I also find that the nightmarish visual imagery that Barker is evoking in the climax, like basically from the point that Redman notices that Lacey is gone and he goes to investigate and finds the crime scene with Hennessy's body hanging from the noose, half consumed and rotting and mm-hmm. everything back in the school. Like, this is so exciting to me. And it's so upsetting. Like I can picture everything so vividly in my mind that I couldn't believe when I looked this up, it hasn't been adapted. Yeah. Yeah, that is it, it is pretty like because this would be a very filmable movie nothing nothing that they talk about here is is something that like you couldn't adapt to celluloid Mm -hmm. and i like i think it would be particularly relevant now because it's talking Mm -hmm. you know it 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 sounds like your hook for this was a lot of the very kind of more intimate and personal nature of of the story for me the the thing that was most interesting i think for me was kind of what it's saying just about how rotted through and through everything mm. is about the system, uh, particularly yes. when it comes to like the justice system and how we handle people who we see as criminals and how we handle, you know, that vague concept of capital C crime mm-hmm. while not really paying attention to the fact that these are all people. And, yep. and I think for Barker, he's not presenting like there is no good guy in this. There are people who are who have been rung through the system and are tragic people. There are people like Redman who, like on one hand, are sympathetic, but then on the other hand, like they make it clear that like or not clear, but they hint heavily at the fact that the only reason that he wants to help this boy, and very clear, this is a boy, is that he has some kind of lustful thought for him. He might not ever yeah. even even act on it, but it's kind of I think pointing to that like. <sighs> that that corruption that's still present you know and mm-hmm. it still questions the motives of of even the the quote unquote protagonist of this story so it's just it's presenting this system that's just rotted all the way through yeah like you you shouldn't have to be an object of sexual desire to be worthy of sympathy from the people in charge mhm absolutely <laughs> yeah this this shouldn't be you know it's that transactional nature of it yeah All right. Well, keeping in line with the transactional nature, but (laughs) shifting the mood to something less institutional and a little bit more artistically driven, we have our fifth story, Sex, Death, and Starshine. And this is about a theater troupe that is mounting a slightly doomed production of Twelfth Night at a theater that is about to close. The director is sleeping with the star who is a soap actress and she does not have the (laughs) acting chops to handle her role as Viola. And so what begins to happen is people begin coming back from the dead. They are seemingly fueled by their devotion to art. So they have pledged their afterlife to the arts. And as a result, they end up mounting this production and it goes spectacularly well, but it's playing only to an audience of people who died and were buried at the theater. And all of the living actors are either killed and burned to death Mm -hmm. and their bodies are just kind of gone Or they too must pledge themselves to the arts and they go off and make a wandering ghost theater troupe. 
I'll come out and say this one's my favorite of the okay. of volume one. That is shocking to me, Brian. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have pegged this one as your favorite. I I enjoy me a whimsical Clive Barker, and I think okay. that's that's what we get here. But it's also it's still Clive Barker, so he doesn't mm-hmm. pull any punches in terms Ooh. of everybody dies. Yeah, everybody <laughs> dies. It's I think this is the one story though where everybody dying doesn't need to be a bad thing. Right. Some of these people deserve it, and some of the people go to it happily. Yeah. And it's kind of that idea of, you know, death doesn't necessarily need to be an ending or need to be something that's that we need to be afraid of. You know, there are characters like, um, you know, one of the the side characters, Tallulah, she's kind Mm -hmm. of this, she's in her 70s. She's, I think, like the ticket taker and has been there forever. And the the character that's kind of uh, uh, Lickfield, who is... The undead person was kind of the the catalyst for starting to right. shift this from a, a a live theater troupe to an undead theater troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had that scene where he's with Tallulah, and she's like, he he just asked her very politely, "Would you would you like to die?" And she says, "Will it hurt? Not, but for a moment, and then right. like you know, everything will be okay." Um, so I like the idea that Barker is presenting death not as like an ending but is just kind of like another step and it in some ways it can be freeing and release you from from pain Mm -hmm. and i don't mean that say that in a way that it's like you know you euthanasia is good yeah yeah exactly (laughs) you know um but more just like again it's clive barker but it's it's uh with just like a dash of i keep saying whimsy but i can't think of Mm -hmm. a better word for it than that no i do think it's the the absolute right word because this story if nothing else seems indebted to the idea of arts as an everlasting thing right like this troupe literally dies to Mm -hmm. put on a better production than what they could have done because to have gone ahead with this soap star in the lead would have been catastrophic like it would have been an insult to the arts and there is no worse crime Mm -hmm. i think that's fascinating like it's almost sweet if the fact that we weren't killing a bunch of people (laughs) for me the only the only death throughout this whole thing that winds up being truly tragic is diane right because for me it's saying something and i don't know if this is barker saying it or if this is just like uh, presentation doesn't necessarily uh, equate to endorsement, mm-hmm. but you know we we have this character in Diane who is not very good yeah. as an actress. She's not a good artist. Yeah, but know what she is really good at, Brian? Blow Giving jobs. head. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whether Ooh. whether dead or undead. Yeah, and that that whole scene, the the, the scene where she does come back. Mm-hmm. And goes down on the director, yeah. And you see it from his point of view. There's something just so kind of fun and macabre about mm-hmm. that whole thing. Like, I hope that was how it was supposed to come off, and I'm not just weird. No, I, I, I fully agree with you because I was thinking. I think that's some of the best writing in the book. Is mm-hmm. that scene when he discovers this blowjob is not the best of my life because she's so good at giving head but because she is literally not breathing which means she doesn't need to stop (laughs) and like the way he writes that like yeah you can feel every bit of that um for good or for bad depending on like (laughs) dirty and not yeah yeah um 
And why I say her death is most tragic is more just because you get the sense – because at the end, she is one of the people that kind of is like an also-ran in the, mm-hmm. the news story yeah. um, because they just kind of let her burn and didn't have her join along with the troop. You know, no. and so you get the sense that it was like they dismissed her as not being worthy, or maybe she decided that like, you know, no, I'm good, and you know, just leave me here. But you know, the the fact that they didn't really explicitly um, mm-hmm. give her that agency at the end was just kind of the one area where it was like oh, I would have liked to have seen her like find her place at the end. Like maybe she's not one of the actors, you know, maybe that's not where she fits, but like she sounds like someone who could be really good at like marketing for them. Now maybe they don't need marketing because they're just <laughs> oh, brilliant. like I don't know if their undead <laughs> audience is going to need like outreach, but like I don't know. I think there was just some kind of missed opportunity for her character. Um I think you wanted more for her because you don't like the idea of bad things happening to just not talented people. Like, there's nothing wrong with Diane, yeah. except for the fact that she's in a profession that she's just not very good at. Yeah. I ugh, I won't lie. I read a slightly misogynistic bent to right, this story, right. because she's a talentless actress who's really good at sex. Mm-hmm. And then she also gets a really horrible end, like... The description of what happens to her during the production when she comes back and she tries to get on stage because they're Mm -hmm. performing without her is some of the most disgusting imagery in this entire short story where they just talk about how she's burning the fat of her, like the the flesh and the fat of her body on the floodlights at the bottom of the stage. Yeah. And really like that's the end that you hear of her except for the like put the knife in and twist it of oh, the newspapers make a note that she was in the fire and she died and then she was forgotten a week later. Yeah. It's like, that's just mean. Yeah. And and not in a way that it's like it was painful for her because by that point she wasn't feeling anything. It's just mm-hmm. so undignified. It you is, know? yeah. For, for someone who didn't deserve it beyond, you know, she was she's not a good artist. And mm-hmm. that's where the question in my mind comes, like, is that – is that yeah coming from Lickfield and their group, or is that mm. is that ultimately coming from Barker? And I read the latter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that is where I do have some issue with the the with the story because I think ultimately, you know, Lickfield's sensibilities are Barker's sensibilities. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a, a, a slight, maybe a little bit of tarnishing stain on that story. Yeah. But it does lead us into the last one, which is In the Hills, the Cities. I had heard about this story. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that this was, quote unquote, the most famous story from this volume. I gotta say, it doesn't disappoint. It is wild, isn't it? Full on what the fuckery. Yeah. Um, and this was the, this is the one where I actually just reread it today. Like I knew the story was in here. I forgot it was like the last one, but yeah, I was mm-hmm. reading it, um, probably within like a half an hour before we, we started recording. Um, this was the one that I first thought like, oh, this is folk horror. Like yes. this is Clive Barker doing folk horror. I hadn't considered pig blood blues as being folk horror as well until we started talking about it but there is such a it's that clash of the modern with this mm-hmm. queer couple um yep. who's who's visiting yugoslavia who just happened to cross paths with this like 
ancient mm-hmm. uh, ritual that goes horribly awry. Oh man! And it's it's another one of those ones where, like, as I think the first time I tried to read these, I was probably like in my early twenties, and like okay. I wouldn't have known what to make of what was going on here. So I remember <laughs> I remember reading it, and I don't remember getting much out of it because it was all very abstract for me. Yeah. Obviously, it still is, but now it's like, okay, what do we pull out of this? Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that I have a lot of answers on that yet, but no. it's it's interesting. I mean, this is the story that I feel like, if nothing else, even if you don't take away as much, like, I don't know that we can go as deep as we went for Pig Blood Blues, or maybe mm-hmm. even Sex, Death, and Starshine, but this one is devastatingly haunting to, like, my psyche. Mm-hmm. imagining this town of 40,000 people every 10 years strapping themselves together to basically form like a transformer mm-hmm. <laughs> and go to battle with another town. And if they don't get the construction correct, then hypothetically they could all just plummet to the ground and die, crush each other, men, women, and children. Mm-hmm. What I love is that I can vividly imagine what this looks like. Like, it's incredibly cinematic in terms of an entire tower of people lumbering across the countryside. But it also is so abstract that my mind can't even process the concept. Like, I kept trying to think, okay, well, how do they move? Like, how Uh do they move in unison? Because they're strapped together, but they're still individuals. But then the story goes on, and you realize their individuality has been sublimated in deference to this one machine. Like they do become one thing. Yeah. Willing to die for it. There's so much to unpack with this because you get the sense that this has gone horribly wrong in a way that it hasn't before. Right. So if this has happened, you know, how many, however many years they've been doing this, usually every 10 years, Mm -hmm. you almost picture like it's this, it's almost this happy ritual. Like it, they, yeah. there's, um, everyone participates. Everyone Everybody participates. knows. No one serious. protests. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, they, they, they even talk about like, it's, it's mandatory and there's like laws, but like mm-hmm. they're formalities because everybody's doing this because they want to. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we're getting into it the year where it goes horribly wrong is mm-hmm. there's something so tragic about because you get the sense that like the other years that it's something very, um successful celebratory celebratory. yes yes that's the word i'm looking for um and so here to kind of watch that go so wrong so badly and essentially ruin the lives of eighty thousand people because Mm -hmm. in some way both of these towns are gone yeah you know one of the one of the transformers we'll we'll keep going with that because i like that analogy <laughs> um completely collapses killing literally everyone 40,000 oh people were making this thing with also makes you wonder like how fucking big this thing had to have been mm-hmm. oh they talk about like how the head passes into the clouds mm-hmm. at one point and it's just, like that that's the thing that boggles my mind like i feel like i have some kind of fit Mm -hmm. trying to imagine what this is even though i can very clearly visualize it but just the scope of this is gobsmacking to the point that when uh mitch and judd do see it and they can't even process what they're seeing i'm like yeah no barker you you got us there like that is what we're experiencing even as we're reading this absolutely which means like we've got folk horror but we've also got a healthy dash of cosmic horror oh my god yes yeah 
because it, you can't really wrap your brain around how massive this must be. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the, the closest Barker gets is you know their heads are in the clouds and describing it as like you can't really picture it. Like there's mm-hmm. no way to picture forty thousand people coming together no. as one person. No. Um, and so it's like with CGI being what it is, I'm sure they Mm-mm, could aesthetically no. bring that together, but I don't think there's don't a way to it. convey how mind-boggling that would be in a visual yeah. sense. It's describing it on the page is what makes it so scary. A hundred percent. I I actually had like the inverse expectation where when I finish Pig Blood Blues. I rushed to the Wikipedia to see if there had been some kind of adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was five pages into In the Hills, the Cities, I just thought, dear Lord, please do not let there be an adaptation of this because yeah. this can only work on the page. And any attempt to do this visually, like our imagination is so powerful. And I can't mm-hmm. imagine trying to bring this onto the screen and me having to see someone else's interpretation. It would be so disappointing. Yeah, it would be like some kind of weird horror version of like Pacific Rim or something like that. Oh, that just that's literally what I was thinking too. Just yeah. would not work. It just no. yeah, it's it it does not. <laughs> it would be one of those things where seeing it would ruin it almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Oh, just but the oh Brian, some of this <laughs> horror, like the fact that when I can't remember if it's Mitch or Judd who ends up throwing themselves on and joining this and just Mick, sort of sacrificing yeah, 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 themselves. He, he jumps into the fray because uh, uh-huh. Judd had been accidentally killed right. by like some kind of piece of debris. Debris. <laughs> and they were very like it was so interesting too because it was like within the maelstrom of this whole this giant like swarm of humanity, like mm-hmm. he's just a blip. His death yeah. is just nothing. no one even notices. Much like most of the how does he he refers to like each of the individual people is basically like a cell yeah you know and and reducing people to just kind of like when when people would die they would just get kind of sloughed off if they were on the outside mm-hmm. or basically pooped out if they were on the inside yeah and i think one of the the key things to that that's so horrifying is the 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 town that does eventually just like get completely that collapses and kills everybody mm-hmm it starts with one death. Yeah. One person dies and it turns into this domino effect that just utterly destroys the entire city person. Mm-hmm. And there's something equally frightening about like that can kind of happen with your body where like yeah. one small thing can go wrong and a chain reaction will develop that will just ob- obliterate you in the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so funny because I literally never thought of that. Like I, I, <laughs> I was consumed by the idea of like these giant city figures. Mm-hmm. I never stopped to consider, oh, this is what our bodies are to like <laughs> individual cells or mm-hmm. something like that. I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not stupid. I think it's just like there's only so much like i honestly i wasn't thinking about that when i was reading it it was only as we were talking about it now and talking through things that that popped in my head when you're reading this story i don't think your brain allows for a lot of like processing because it's just mm-hmm. so wrapped up in like what the fuck like mm-hmm. it's just so pushed to the brink and again like it's parker knows how to do cosmic horror like we talked about yeah. uh on horror queers when we were talking about 
uh, Hellraiser, uh, I think it was Trace that brought up, like, that's also cosmic horror. Mm -hmm. So Barker's kind of got that. That's another through line in his stuff. He he likes to talk about things that are just like too big or gnarly for your brain to be able to comprehend. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I when I was reading this, I didn't love it. Like I'd heard so much about it. I went in with too high expectations, which is always a problem for me. And <laughs> I was reading it and just thinking like, okay, this is interesting. You know, we've got this queer couple and they're fighting and that's intriguing. And then we've got this bizarre celebration festival thing that's building, but you really don't understand what's happening even up to the point when Mitch and Judd finally see what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And it it only really starts to dawn on you when you're getting into the massive devastation like when you realize 40,000 people have died and like the car is practically being taken away by the amount of blood that is going Mm. by it that's when it really starts to sink in but even then I was like okay well you know like this is a bit meandering (laughs) and then when I got to the end of the story this idea that again we're we're dealing with not just cosmic horror I think but like god-like figures right Mm mm-hmm cities made entirely of people working as one to the point that it it just destroys individual personality to the point that mitch or judd whichever one survives quote unquote to see through to the end is willing to sacrifice themselves to be a part of it knowing that they will die and not even caring because at this point they're not even them anymore like that is reverence that is religiosity and i think these big stories, like the ones that Barker is telling in volume one, are the ones like the God stories, the Midnight Meat Club, Pig Blood Blues, and then in the hills, the cities. Those are the stories that I think I'm going to return to or think of often. And again, you know, talking about some of the 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 higher like social or cultural things he might be looking at with these. I, I need to mull about with this because part of me doesn't hope he's not going this way with it. But like mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the things that popped in my head, okay, we're talking about a, a group of people who come together communally and decide to make this like communal slash socialist kind of decision. Mm-hmm. And it goes horribly awry. <laughs> yeah. So yes. I'm like, is this, is this Barker kind of like having a little something to say about like where come and it's in what like eastern europe so yes. like is he saying a little something about communism or socialism here yeah. um, i don't know or you know is that kind of one of those uh, am i reading too deeply into this i don't know i think it's probably worth keeping in the back of our minds as we proceed through some of these other texts i mean just because we love some of the artists doesn't mean that they are infallible or not problematic or don't mm-hmm. have certain things that make them less than great. You know, I think it's it's our responsibility in doing this project to kind of keep an eye out for some of those things and be able to broach the subject as we go through. Just because mm-hmm. Barker is a great wordsmith and he's a queer icon doesn't make him immune to criticisms or things and maybe we'll continue to see an evolution over the course of these books and we've already had some discussions about some uh let's say missteps uh, that he had in in scarlet gospels so yeah it's um it's something to keep in mind most definitely exactly yeah all right 
Well, I think that wraps up Books of Blood Volume 1, Brian. If folks want to talk about any of these stories with you, but maybe not so much the Midnight Meat Train, because we are (laughs) going to talk about that in greater detail in the future. Uh, but say any of the other five, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, Twitter's your best bet. Get me at evil Taylor Hicks for as long as Twitter continues to limp along. That'll be my, uh, my social <laughs> media platform of choice. Yes. Twitter being the first city in this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are currently falling over. We'll see how many of us die when we land. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah. And uh, I can be reached at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. Thanks, as always, to the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad for hosting the show. So, Brian, as teased, we will be back before the clock welcomes in 2023 to discuss the Midnight Meat Train. Sneaking in one more for 2022. I'm, I'm oh, boy. For oh, boy. Oh, yeah. boy. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. But until then... Uh, Oh no. Where would you want to be in this city? Would you want to be on the foot or the eye or the inside, the outside? Oh, is is this the city that collapses or the one that goes insane? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> then put me on the foot. Put me out of my misery quick. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. You can just cart around my dead body until <laughs> you also expire. Oof. Ooh. Okay, goodbye. squad.